Boy, it is weird to be introduced by one of your favorite students and have him mention one of your favorite teachers at the same time. That's pretty strange. It's also demoralizing to hear that Miller thought I was a C student. I don't think I said that. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, it's fiction. It's fiction, yeah. Um, there was a great moment. Miller is actually maybe the most influential uh, person in my life when it comes to um, teachers because there was a moment, uh, there was something called narrative and thematic patterns, which was what uh, used to take as a freshman at Trinity, and it would be tragedy, comedy, romance, irony. And I came from a shitty public high school, um, and I was in, and I liked English, so I signed up for Miller's class, and I was there the first couple days, and I thought, you can't do this, because I was surrounded by kids who'd come from Choate, and were just like so smooth, you know, and they had, they had like the patches on their elbows, and they were like, I think it's really nuanced. <laughs> There's a sort of a metafictional gesture being made here, and I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> and so I went up to Mila after the first day or two, and maybe even the first class. I went up to Mila and I said, I, I, I think I have to drop this course. And Mila had that great expression she had when she didn't register. I'd even been in the class. So. <laughs> and she said, oh, I'm sorry, strange person. Why do you have to drop the class? And I said, I, I don't have any idea what's going on in this you know, in this discussion, I was lost. And she said, well, what, what did you think was going on? And I think it was a little poem we did the first day. And she said, well, what did you think was going on in the poem? And I told her, and she said, well, that's more or less what we were talking about. And I said, yeah, but they were saying nuance, you know. And she said, they, they just, they have the style down. They know the rap. You don't know the rap yet. Just give it a little while. And I was like, God bless you, lady. <laughs> And I went on to get a B in that class, okay? <laughs> I think I actually got a B plus, he said proudly, but still. Um, but, but Mila kept me in English, and if it hadn't been for Mila, I'm sure right now I would be behind a counter going, you want fries with that? Um, all right, I'm going to read from the uh, new novel. My plan is to read, my secret plan is to read about 20 minutes. I'll jump around a little bit. And then we'll have an interactive part where we can talk about pretty much anything you want to hear about, including Ethan's sexual history, <laughs> which could take a while. Um, but I should preface it, I, I hate those sort of things where people tell you what you need to know about a novel, but you should know a little bit uh, before we get started. And one, uh, one of the ways in which this novel is very unusual for me um, is that it began with somebody suggesting I write it. Um, and I write enough, I write about a, a wide array of odd enough stuff that I get um, messages from old students and friends all the time saying, why don't you write about this? This is weird, you should do this. And about five years ago, an old student wrote me and said, why have you never written about Janusz Korczak? And Janusz Korczak, for those of you who are not steeped in Polish history, um, was one of the great educational reformers of the early 20th century who had this sort of radical idea that uh, children were human beings and that their um, desires should be taken into account in some way in their education. And if you know something about, say, Prussian education in the 19th century, you realize what a radical idea that was. His idea sort of swept through Europe and transformed education. He was also a pediatrician and a children's health advocate. 
He was a, a huge best-selling author he, for children. He was um, a radio personality. We don't really have an analog in America, but if we had one, it would be something like Dr. Seuss, Dr. Spock, and Garrison Keillor all rolled into one. You know, um, 1939 rolls around, and he says, I've had lived a good long life. I'm ready to go to Palestine and retire. And the Germans invade Poland. And he thinks, I better not go anywhere. Um, so he runs an orphanage in Warsaw. It ends up being the orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto. And in 1942, the Germans, who respect him as much as they can respect any Jew, come to him and say, we're going to liquidate your orphanage. We're going to send all the kids to Treblinka. Everybody at that point knows what Treblinka means. It's a death camp. It's not a concentration camp. And he says, uh, I'm going with them. And the Germans say, well, you don't have to. You know, there's going to be more orphans. And he says, no, if they're going, I'm going with them. And the Germans say, all right, well, suit yourself. Um, you might want to tell them they're going to a happy place. And he says, no, my whole educational um, belief system has been about the dignity of the child, so I'm going to tell them the truth. And you watch how we handle ourselves. The children ended up having to march from their orphanage, which was in the southern extremity of the ghetto, all the way to the northern extremity of the ghetto, um, which was where the deportation site was. When I walked that in Warsaw, it took me two and a half hours. It must have taken the kids, because they were age four to about 13. It must have taken them at least four hours, and they did it in the midday heat, and they did it in ranks. They did it in almost perfect order. Um, and the Germans had a rule then that if you weren't being deported as a Jew, you had to come out and watch the Jews who were being deported. So the entire ghetto saw them march by. And it was this astonishing and wrenching and moving um, spectacle that um, all of the survivors wrote about. But it also sort of changed the direction of the war because it turned out that um, one of the arguments against resistance had always been, well, they're not going to kill everybody. And after Stalingrad, the um, understanding was that the Germans were going to lose the war. It was just a matter of how long it was going to take. So there was a very powerful argument to be made, just don't piss them off, right? Let's just keep our heads down. When the Jews saw Korchak being marched to the deportation site, they thought, oh, they are going to kill them all. They are going to kill us all. And so from then on in, um, all the Jews in the ghetto started uh, contributing to the hoarding of weapons. And the uh, Jewish uprising followed a few months later. Sounds like a good story to write about. Um, why had I never written about it? Well, I've always been resistant to writing about the great men and women of history. Um, I don't much like hagiography. I prefer the worm's eye view of politics and history. Um, and I'm also wary of what's supposed to be commensurate in terms of conflict with somebody who's that amazing, right? It's, I'm going to write about Gandhi, but he had a stutter, you know? Uh, I'm going to write about Jesus. He was awkward around women, you know? You're like, really? He was still Jesus. Leave him alone, you know? So I'm also the kind of person, however, who has Korchak's Ghetto Diary in my library, um, as I told Lucy's class today, my wife has said about me, I'm the only person she knows who would take a history of the guillotine to the beach. Um, so I reread Korchak's Ghetto Diary just out of curiosity, and I came across a story that really snagged my emotional attention, which was this mother had said um, she was dying of typhus, and she said I'm gonna, to her 10-year-old boy, I'm going to stay alive until I can get you into that orphanage. And there were no openings. So she miraculously stayed alive month after month after month. And then finally, Korchak said to the family, there's an opening. And the mother said, thank God, and died. And the boy never forgave Korchak. <clears throat> and Korchak had this enormous problem with this 10-year-old who bitterly resented him. And I thought, what would that be like to be 
the boy who's so damaged and unhappy that he can't appreciate someone who saved his life. He can't appreciate someone who's, on, who's continuing to save his life. What would it be like to be unable to appreciate someone who's that important to you? And my mother would go, yes, what would that be like? <laughs> I wonder. So anyway, this is narrated by a boy. <clears throat> I'm going to read you the very beginning, then I'm going to jump to a short sequence where he and his uh, smuggler pals go to see Korshak's orphanage, because Korshak's orphanage would put on performances, and the whole ghetto would go to see him. And then I'll jump to a passage much later. This is the very beginning of the novel. My mother and father named me Aaron, but my father said they should have named me What Have You Done? And my uncle told everyone they should have called me What Were You Thinking? I broke medicine bottles by crashing them together and let the neighbor's animals loose from pens. My mother said my father shouldn't beat such a small boy, but my father said that one misfortune was never enough for me. And my uncle told her that my kind of craziness was like stealing from the rest of the family. When I complained about it, my mother reminded me I had only myself to blame and that in our family, the cure for a toothache was to slap the other side of your face. My older brother was always saying we all went without cradles for our backsides or pillows for our heads. Why didn't he complain some more, my mother suggested. Maybe she could light the stove with his complaints. My uncle was my mother's brother, and he was the one who started calling me Shmaya because I did so many things that made him put his finger to his nose as a warning and say, God has heard. We shared a house with another family in Panavish near the Lithuanian border. We lived in the front room with a four-paned window and a big stove with a tin sheet on top. Our father was always off looking for money. For a while, he sold animal hides. Our mother wished he would do something else, but he always said the pope and the peasant each had their own work. She washed other people's floors, and when she left for the day, our neighbors did whatever they wanted to us. They stole our food and threw our things into the street. Then she came home exhausted and had to fight with them about how they treated us, while I hid behind the rubbish pile in the courtyard. When my older brothers got home, they'd be part of the shouting, too. Where's Shmaya, they'd ask when it was over. I'd still be behind the rubbish pile. Shmaya only looks out for himself, my uncle always said, but I never wanted to be like that. I lectured myself on walks. I made lists of ways I could improve. Years went by like one unhappy day. My mother tried to teach me the alphabet unsuccessfully. She used a big paper chart attached to a board and pointed to a bird or a little man or a person and to the letter that went with them. A whole day was spent trying to get me to draw the semicircle and straight line of the letter Aleph. But I was like something that had been raised in the wild. I didn't know the names of objects. Teachers talked to me and I stared back. My last hater results before we moved reported my conduct was unsatisfactory, my religion unsatisfactory, my arithmetic unsatisfactory, and even my wood and metal shop work unsatisfactory. My father called it the most miserable report he'd ever seen and invited us all to figure out how I had pulled it off. My mother said that I might have been getting better in some areas, and he told her that if God gave me a second or third life, I'd still understand nothing. He said a person with strong character could correct his path and start again, but a coward or a weakling could not. I always wondered if others had such difficulty in learning. I always worried what would become of me if I couldn't do anything at all. It was terrible to have to be the person I was. 
I spent rainy days building dams in the street to divert the runoff. I found boards and pushed them along puddles with sticks. My mother dragged me out of the storms, saying that there I sat with my dreams full of fish and pancakes. She said while she bundled me into the bed next to the stove that I had never avoided an illness, from chickenpox to measles, scarlet fever to whooping cough, and that was why I spent my whole life 99% dead. At night, I lay waiting for sleep like our neighbor's dog waited for passing wagons. When she heard me still awake, my mother would come to my bedside, even as tired as she was, to help me sleep. She said that if I squeezed my eyelids tight, lights and planets would float down past them, though I'd never be able to count them before they disappeared. She said that her grandfather told her that God moved those lights and planets with his little finger. I told her I was sorry for the way I was, and she said that she wasn't worried about school, but only about how I was with my family and our neighbors. She said that too often my tongue worked, but not my head, or my head worked, but not my heart. Yet when my younger brother was born, I told her I wanted him thrown into the chicken coop. I was glum that whole year when I was four because of an infected vaccination on my arm. My mother said I played alone even when there were other kids about. Two years went by without my learning a thing. I didn't know how to swim or ride a bicycle. I had no grandparents, no aunts, and no godparents. When I asked why, my father said it was because society's parasites ate well while the worthy received only dirty water. And my mother said it was because of sickness. I attended Hader until my father came back from one of his trips and told my mother that it was 1936 and time for me to get a modern education. I was happy to change, since our teacher always had food in his beard and caned us across the fingers for wrong answers and his house smelled like a kennel. So instead I went to public school, which was cleaner all around. My father was impressed that the new teacher dressed in the European style and that after he taught me to read, I started teaching myself. Since I was bored and knew no one, I took to books. And in public school, I met my first friend. His name was Udall. I liked him. Like me, he had no future. He was always running somewhere with his nose dripping. We made rafts to put in the river and practice long-distance spitting. He called me Shmaya too, and I called him Pisher. When he wasn't well-behaved, he was clever enough to keep the teacher from catching on. One morning before anyone arrived, we played tip cats so violently we broke some classroom windows. We scared the boys who had nice satchels and never went barefoot. He was always getting me into trouble at home, and one Sabbath I was beaten for taking apart the family scissors so I could have two little swords for him and for me. His mother taught him only sad songs, including one about the king of Siberia before she got sick because of her teeth and died. He came looking for me once she was dead, but I hid from him. He told me the next day that two old men carried her out of the house on a board, and then his father moved him away. That summer, a card arrived from my father from his cousin in Warsaw, telling him there was work in his factory. The factory made fabric out of cotton thread. My father hitched a ride to the city in a truck full of geese and then sent for us. He moved us to 21 Zamenhofer Street, apartment number six. My mother made us each memorize the address so we could find it when we got lost. And my younger brother, who had a bad lung, spent his days at the back window looking out at the garbage bins. 
We both thought the best thing about the move was the tailor shop across the square. The tailor made uniforms for the army, and in the front of his window, there were three rows of hand-sized mannequins, each dressed in miniature uniforms. We especially loved the tiny service ribbons and medals. Because it was summer, I was expected to work at the factory. So far away, we had to ride the trolley. I was shut up in a little room with no windows and four older boys and, I, and uh, set to finishing the fabrics. The bolts had to be scraped until they acquired a grain like you found on winter stockings. Each of them took hours, and someone as small as me had to lean his chest onto the blade to scrape with enough force. On hot days, sweat ran off me like rain off a roof. The other boys said things like, what a fine young man from the country we now have in our midst. He's clearly going to be a big wheel in town. And I thought, am I only here so they can make fun of me? And I refused to go back. And my father said he would give me such a beating, it would hurt to raise my eyebrows. But while I sat there like a mouse under the broom, my mother stopped him and said, there was plenty I could do at home, and school was beginning in a few weeks anyway. My father said I'd only been given a partial hiding, and she told him that would do for now. And that night, once they started snoring, I crept to their beds and kissed her goodnight and pulled the blanket from his feet so that maybe he'd catch a chill. I think what I'll do is skip to one other section, and then we'll get interactive. I'm going to skip to a point where he has, in fact, lost everybody, and he has enrolled in the orphanage. And now he's been at the orphanage for a few days. So he has already met Korchak. I turned out to be good at unloading coal, which meant I was covered in coal dust from the waist down and not head to toe. I also helped with a shipment of groats that the heavy woman mixed with horse blood for our breakfast. I was invited to join the choir and told them I couldn't sing and invited to join the drama club and said I couldn't act. The heavy woman talked to me about my application and seemed to think my situation was more than pathetic enough and that I needn't worry about being kicked out onto the street. And she told me to please start calling her Madame Stefa. The Germans told Korchak the window panes now needed to be covered with black paper at night. So she sat me at a work table and carried over a crate filled with paste and scissors and rolls of black paper and put me in charge of four other kids in making the shades. When they wouldn't listen to me, she told Zygmus to help out. He asked why it was his job, but she only gestured to where she wanted him to sit and then left. He had me measure and others do the cutting and pasting. The kids talked about nothing but eating. One said that when he was young, he could go all day without eating, but now he was an empty pot. He said that soup was no sooner poured down into his stomach than he was hungry again. He had the same blank and accepting expression as my little brother, and I had to stop looking at him. I moved the step stool over to the windows and did arm lengths to estimate sizes. One of the other kids asked Zygmunt if he had any brothers or sisters, and he said he had three sisters. He said his parents used to have a mill that ground buckwheat flour, and one day he and his sisters had gone to get milk, and when they returned, people were robbing the mill, and a neighbor was saying, you people are robbing these kids and they're orphans, and that's how they found out their parents had been killed. He said his older sister had then been attacked by some German soldiers and had run away over the Russian border, and that had really put them out of business as a family, since she'd been the only one left who could cook. Madame Stefa was in charge of the daily routine. Her scoldings always began with, let me tell you, and when she was asked a question she didn't want to answer, she always said, let's not worry about it. Korchak 
spent two days a week arranging for help for other orphanages, and the rest of the time went begging for us. On those days, he left early and returned late, and always took a different boy. He begged at the Jewish community office in the homes of the rich or the collaborators, and outside the cafes. The heavy woman worried about him. She said when he was gone that he came back in the evenings worn out from having had to raise hell over a barrel of sauerkraut. Zygmunt said the kids he picked to go along were the ones who'd been with him since they were small, and that he liked the kids he had raised more than the rest. I watched him late at night when he got back. With only one light on, he looked ancient. His hands shook and he rationed his cigarettes and vodka with saccharin, and every few minutes he cleared his throat. So you're up again, he said one night when he finally saw me watching. Aren't you tired? Don't we give you enough to do? I was always tired, I told him. And whatever I had to do, I couldn't handle. So you're not one of my fire eaters, he asked. Like your friend Zygmus, whose mother rode stags through the forest and ate horses. My mother took in washing, I told him. I remember you from the gang at the gate, he said. And when I apologized, he told me it was all right. I hadn't been the cruel one, and everyone had to do what they needed to in order to get by. All doors opened before the hungry. He shook me awake on my cot the next day and told me to get dressed because I was coming with him. When we got outside, it was still dark. I didn't want to be back out on the streets, I told him. He said he understood. He talked nonstop as he walked. He said, maybe today we'd visit the Germans. He said the officer assigned to supervise the orphanage had been a pediatrician himself and always referred to Korchak as his respected colleague and thought that was hilarious. He said the officer called the orphanage his Republic of Swindlers and that it said the Jews managed to adjust to every situation but never knew how good they had it. Like the man who complained he had no golden shoes but didn't realize he was soon to lose his legs. It was windy and muddy and cold and everyone who was out early moved around as if fed up with his own exhaustion. Most were beggars who'd been out all night. We stopped next to a girl with bare arms squatting in front of a little wagon carrying frozen and rotted rutabagas. A younger girl was curled up under the wagon with her feet covered in newspaper wrapped and tied into the shape of shoes. Korchak knelt next to her and put something in her hand. Both girls did everything slowly. Enough about the Germans, he said, once we started walking again. He blew on his hands. I asked where we were going, and he asked if it mattered. He said that given one circumstance or another, we were all tied up like dogs on a chain. After I didn't answer, he apologized for saying something so unhelpful. His apology made him quiet. He said that in one house the previous week, he found six children on a wet and rotting mattress. And when I still didn't say anything, he asked, who wasn't sad? He said the world was one great sadness. He said what we needed to do was tell ourselves we weren't living in the worst place in the world, but instead were surrounded by grasshoppers and glowworms. From his expression, it didn't look like he was being ironic. I told him again that I didn't want to be out on the street. And when he didn't answer, I said I didn't want to be at the orphanage either. He said I was free to leave. And I hated him for making me feel the way I did. And I hated myself even more for not just being dead somewhere. The sun came up. 
And he asked if I was at least happy to be out in the sunshine. I rubbed my arms and face. And he asked if I'd heard him. I told him that whether I was happy or unhappy, I took things as I found them. He said his mother used to say when it was sunny and he was particularly gloomy, that not even a Jew could suffer on a day like today. Every few steps now, someone was begging or selling or had come out of a hole and was trying to keep warm. One was wrapped in a quilt that was losing feathers in the wind. Someone was selling milk out of their house and we got in line for some. Wherever there's a line, I stand in it, no matter what they're selling, because I know I'm going to get something, he joked. We began our begging at a rich man's house. He rang the bell. The man, when he answered the door, said, Oh, Pan Doctor, you're killing me here, instead of hello. And Korchak asked him, What was worse than being an old man? And answered, Being an old Jew. And what was worse than that? An old Jew who was penniless. And worse than that? An old Jew who was penniless and unresourceful. And worse than that, an old Jew who was penniless and unresourceful and who bore the burden of a large family. And worse than that, someone whose large family were all children. And worse than that, children who were starving. The man disappeared from the door and returned with some money and dumped it into a sack Korchak held out. Then he excused himself and said good morning and shut the door while Korchak looked into the sack. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you.